0: Hi everyone, welcome back to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rurkraut.
1: And I'm Sophia Simonello.
0: And welcome to season three. We're so excited to be back. We're starting off with a bang, one of our favorite movies, The Godfather, and celebrating its 50th anniversary. We both got to enjoy it in theaters and even more at home, and I'm so excited for today's episode.
1: Me too. Oh my god, it was so nice, like, taking a break after Oscar season, and I feel like this is the perfect way to return. We are talking about one of my favorite movies of all time, maybe my favorite Best Picture winner ever, so I feel like this is just the perfect way to kick off the season. And we were also joined by Dana Renga, who was our professor of our Mafia Movies class, which we talk about all the time. So stick around until the end of the episode where we will share our conversation that we had with her. We loved having her on.
0: Totally. And we'll definitely put the timestamp in. I had such a great time talking to Dana, so I'm really excited for everybody to hear this. But let's go back to our theater experiences because I think we both had great but very interesting times at the theater. (laughs)
1: For sure. And I have to say, when I saw this movie in theaters, I was just like fully hyped. I just kept thinking to myself, like, oh, this is the golden age of cinema. Like, The Godfather is so perfect. It's so beautiful. And I think most importantly, it holds up. It Mm -hmm. might be better today than it was in 1972.
0: Well, and this was, I remember the night that I saw Cyrano. And I kind of persuaded you not to see it after you saw The Mm -hmm. Godfather. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely would have changed that high for you.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. I had every intention of doing a double that night, but I just, I was like, nothing can kill this experience for me. Like, I just need to sit in this for a little Mm -hmm. while. And then I ended up walking that AMC, the 34th Street AMC, all the way to Union Square. I was just, like, buzzing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> I was like I'm not going to another movie after this
0: and you said this was one of your favorites this is in my top five movies of all time mm-hmm. it's top two best picture winners but what else is your relationship with this movie when did you see it first why do you love it so much how many times have you seen it
1: wow okay so I Truly don't know how many times I've seen it because it is just something that I feel like I don't know if I can separate how many times I've seen The Godfather versus how many times I've seen TV shows or other movies or commercials or things that are just so clearly influenced by The Godfather that it feels like something that is just ubiquitous. And I think my relationship with this movie started because my great-grandparents are from near where the Corleone family is from in Sicily. So this movie definitely like has a hold on my family in that way. And I think it does for a lot of Italians. So I knew about The Godfather before I had really seen it in full. I was allowed to watch it when I was very young. The only part I remember I wasn't allowed to watch was with Apollonia in Italy, like their wedding night. But all of the violence I was hmm. allowed to watch as like a very small child. Oh, wow. So I think I had just always seen parts of it, and then I watched it in full for the first time, probably in middle school, and then just kept watching it year to year. My family watches this every Christmas. Um, The Godfather is a Christmas movie, and The Godfather (laughs) Part 2 is a New Year's (laughs) Eve movie. And yeah, it's so important to me. I think it's just, it's astonishingly well made. We will talk about the production, which we could do an entire podcast series on, and just why it's so miraculous that this movie even got made. But... I think what just stands out to me is just how brilliant of a story it is about the American dream.
0: I mean, we have the mob films from the 20s, 30s, but they're very different. I think Mm -hmm. the way that Coppola demanded it be a period film and very true to the novel, I think that and a lot of how he worked and why the studio didn't like him, which we'll get to, is why this movie is so successful.
1: Yeah, there's that, like like I said, it's a, it's a miracle that this happened. I want to ask you, I mean, if this is your favorite best picture movie of all time, you don't love like the 70s as in a, a decade in American filmmaking as much as I do. So I think, what about this one do you really love that puts it ahead of all of the other best picture winners for you and in your top five of all time for film in general?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: There's just something so special the way this movie flows.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When you're done with the wedding, you're like 40 minutes in and you don't feel that.
2: Mm-mm. Like
0: Some of the techniques now may not seem that groundbreaking, like that zoom out of Amerigo in the very beginning and the movie starting on him and not Don Corleone.
2: Mm-hmm. And then you
0: get that whole sequence and then you go into the wedding and hearing about how they shot those like very separately and their timelines for all of these scenes the music from the wedding, the vibe of everything happening. And then you get into the story and you learn about the characters and the whole mafia family and seeing the transition of Michael and him taking over as Don. It's just, there's so much going on and it's so well planned out and so well written, adapted, shot. There's nothing not to love.
1: Yeah.
0: And as a three-hour 70s movie, yeah. (laughs) You can be shocked, but... I watched it in the theater, I came home, watched the director's commentary, and, like, it just goes.
1: And I think, too, it's crazy because when you think about the dire state of the box office today (laughs) and everything that's Mm -hmm. happening with what audiences like, this was a major hit. It Mm -hmm. makes me, like, sick to my stomach. (laughs) Like, the fact that audiences craved films like this is just, Mm -hmm. like, crazy to believe because, yeah, it was the highest-grossing film of 1972, grossed over a hundred million at the box office. So it really changed like what mm-hmm. studios put out there and what was considered a hit. It hooks you and keeps you interested and engaged the entire time, but there's so much depth to it. It feels Shakespearean. It's it feels like a Greek tragedy. I think, you know, mm-hmm. the trumpets at the beginning that you hear. It makes it feel like some biblical epic like Ben Hur. And I I don't know, I just I love that combination that we get.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fact that it made almost 30 million in its first month, Mm -hmm. and this is 50 years ago. Yeah. Like, one, there's no way that happens today, but yeah, audiences just like different movies. And that kind of springs from our conversation of, you know, the Oscars from the end of this past season. And Mm -hmm. it's wild how things have changed.
1: Yeah. Sure is. I think so. (laughs) Let's get into some of the history, like around the production, because. The production of this it really is this saga that can be akin to the Corleone family saga just of <laughs> everything that happened all of the players that were involved people who wanted to get involved but then didn't people who were afraid to sign on and miss that opportunity mm-hmm. but I feel like the stars just perfectly aligned and we got the masterpiece that we got and I think to start, so we have Mario Puzo. So he wrote this book because he was in debt and needed money. And that's also a through line that will run through the story. And he goes to Robert Evans, who is at Paramount at the time, head of Paramount. He asks him for this advance. Robert Evans gives him $12,000 for the option and guarantees that he'll get 50 K if it's ever made into a movie. So that's kind of where it begins. And then I think if we're thinking about Paramount at the time, hmm Evans is such an interesting figure because he was an actor. He has no experience running a studio, but he's really good at his job. But I think thinking about the book, so Paramount had just made Love Story, like, very recently, and that, I mean, I do not have good opinions about that one. This is very different. But the big thing there is that Love Story was a very popular book turned into a big box office hit for Paramount. So I think... Evans saw that and knew that the way in the business at the time was to adapt popular books.
0: Basically, nobody in this cast or movie was its first choice. Coppola wasn't the first choice. They had Elia Kazan, Arthur Penn, Richard Brooks, and then Al Pacino wasn't the first choice. Neither was Marlon Brando because the studio didn't believe it. But when they finally saw this like screen test but it was a makeup test disguise because Marlon Brando didn't do screen tests they like actually saw that he could do this but i think if it were any other way like we can also get into who we think could have been or some other questions we got from listeners but they got mostly italians to play in this cast and the way they functioned they set up these dinners where they would have to be in character And that's like kind of how they got this vibe going too and made it feel real.
1: Yeah, I mean, that I think is the key right there. That is the most important thing is that before this, we had mob movies, like you mentioned, we had gangster pictures, but we didn't have any mob movies that were made by, made with and made for Italian Americans. Paramount was so reluctant, I think, to take this on at first, because they had made A mob movie right before called the brotherhood with kirk douglas that bombed but again not focusing italian americans the mafia is italian like when we took our mafia movies course (laughs) Mm -hmm. only watch italian films Mm -hmm. like that's that's where it comes from the cosa nostra is italian
0: and coppola said on his director's commentary that like this movie was made for a family by a family and like He directed the movie. Sophia shows up as the baby in the baptism sequence. And then his parents show up throughout the movie in the wedding. And then his dad is playing the piano. So it really is a family production Mm -hmm. through and through.
1: Yeah, his sister Talia Shire plays Connie. I love that because I mean, the Coppola's are like such a family dynasty. But I loved that that was important to him from the get go. So you started to tease I think some of the casting decisions and the directors that passed on this i think like starting with the directors you mentioned arthur penn and Elia kazan the fact that so peter bart who was at paramount at the time he suggested coppola because he was italian-american but coppola was only 31 at the time so young it makes me feel rough about myself <laughs> what am i doing <laughs> <laughs> but he also much like mario puzzo who wrote the novel was in debt And he needed to make this movie so that he could pay back his debts to Warner Brothers. And Paramount also knew that he would make this movie for relatively cheap Mm -hmm. compared to maybe some of the other directors that they wanted. But again, like due to the failure of mob movies, due to some previous projects that they'd done, like Bonnie and Clyde in the case of Warren Beatty and Arthur Penn, directors passed on this. It's so crazy to think about. Like Coppola is far down the line of choices for the studio of who could make this movie.
0: Yeah, so him standing up to the studio and demanding certain things about actors, about how the movie is shot, is kind of astounding. You know, Mm -hmm. you have a young director, he hasn't made anything this big yet, and he's $4 million over budget by the end, and the studio is constantly at least hinting at firing him. It's a feat
1: right and like his original editor went behind his back and said that the film was beautiful but it didn't it didn't work and thankfully robert evans saw something there and was like "Eh, i don't know about that took it to his Mm -hmm. own editor and the other editor was like this is great this cuts together fine like what are you talking about because this other like the original editor thought that he could get the project if coppola was fired so there's a lot of shady stuff happening wow and I think when you still hear Coppola talk about it, it was a little traumatic for him to get this this made because of all of these like threats of firings and
0: mm-hmm. everything
1: that was happening behind the scenes.
0: And then on final edit, the studio wanted it like under like two hours and five minutes or something. And he didn't do that, but he had cut so much. The studio was like, no, no, no. We need the family stuff back in there. So he recut yeah. it and now it's a lot longer. But again, that's why it works is because it's not just telling a story. It's telling the development of this family and who the family tree is and why it has to be so interconnected.
1: Yeah. And I think let's go into the casting. Coppola and Puzo both wanted Brando to play Don Vito. But Robert Evans said, and I quote, as president of Paramount Pictures, Marlon Brando will never appear in this motion picture. (laughs) Obviously, he went back Yikes. on that, but yeah. Brando had such a history, I think, of being really difficult to work with, mm-hmm. and they just didn't want him in this role.
0: Another thing Coppola said is that like, if they hired Marlon, there would be three stipulations. He would do a screen test, he would do it for free, and there would be a bond that like, he wouldn't do any shenanigans on set, so that the company wouldn't lose any money. And I think that's what they were really mostly worried about. Again, over budget and someone who is problematic to work with. That is scary when you're like putting all this money down. So I don't think those all of those things were kept to in the end, but I'm glad they got them in.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the only stipulation that held was that first one because we have those great (laughs) stories from the makeup tests and from the screen tests. Before the makeup team even completed his look, he had fully transformed into Don Vito. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, you know, when you see that, that again just shows the instinct of Coppola and the type of movie that he wanted. Brando Mm -hmm. is not Italian but he's a passable Italian, I would say, because Brando can, can sound Italian.
0: <laughs> well, in getting to the voice and the look, I do have to mention this. So in the screen test, they used wool for his cheeks, mm-hmm. but in the end, they have this prosthesis that he wears that puffs his cheeks out, and it's on display in the American Museum of the Moving Image, and I need to go.
1: Wait, the one in New York, in Queens? Mm-hmm. I've been there, and I have not. I haven't <laughs> seen that. I just went to a screening, though. I didn't go through the whole museum, oh. so I I should yeah, go back and go. see that. Yes, we do. Wow, I think too. So the casting for Michael, which I think might even be a more essential role than Don Vito for this movie, I just some of these names when I am reminded of who they were considering, I'm just like. This is all wrong. Like no, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. Robert Redford, beautiful blonde, Ryan O'Neal, the lesser Robert Redford but also blonde. Warren Beatty, I it just doesn't feel right to me. Pacino's mm-hmm. the only one. Jack Nicholson. I know you're the world's biggest Jack Nicholson Ooh. fan. Can you imagine if he was Michael?
0: I would not like the Godfather, I don't think. <laughs>
1: And James Caan was also considered for Michael before he ended up getting the role of Sonny, which also doesn't work.
0: No, Al, at the time, he was 32, and you can see that boyishness to him, but also being able to stick up for himself and Mm -hmm. to demand the respect when he's given that title. And I like how that plays, and then if only we could talk about part two, but how all of that continues, yeah, I cannot... Imagine a blonde Michael,
2: mm-hmm.
0: let alone somebody else. And the fact that they want to use Ryan O'Neal just because of love story, I'm assuming, is mm-hmm. no.
1: Yeah, no. I... N-n-n. It's not quite right. And, like, these are great actors. They've shown their chops before in other, like, films that we've seen and films that we love. But the key thing, I think, there are two key things for Al Pacino and why he works here. One... Coppola knew that he would look good in those Sicily scenes. He could see him. He can envision him in Sicily, which Mm -hmm. was a huge part of why he was cast in the film. But two, I think Pacino isn't the type of like pretty boy figure like Redford or O'Neill or Beatty, but he does have that boyishness that you said that leads him to be underestimated, which is key. But then he has that dark beauty to him that is, that makes you, able to see his transformation to the end. I Mm -hmm. think that this actor and this character has to put forth, we talk about transformations all the time with the Oscars, but this is such a strong inner transformation of a character Mm
2: -hmm.
1: throughout the film that I feel like Pacino is just the only one who could have done it.
0: Yeah, and I think as a war vet who comes in and having that relationship with Kay, which keeps him innocent in a way, you know, as long as he can hold out, really. But I think that relationship is an easy way to see his transformation, Mm -hmm. let alone from the family. But, you know, from that early scene in the wedding, and then later on, and eventually at the end where she's saying, did you do this, Michael? And, you know, and then the door shuts on her. Mm -hmm. So,
1: oh, I can't wait to talk about the doors, like the door shutting. That's just so important. But while we're on Diane Keaton, she also was relatively unknown at the time, much like Pacino, but she had already been cast, and she was key to Pacino's casting because she favored him as well. She told Coppola that Pacino was who she wanted in the part and who she saw in the part. So I love that for our mother, Diane.
0: Mm-hmm. And then they dated after this movie? Is mm-hmm. that right?
1: Yeah. She she has some interesting... <laughs> <laughs> she, she loves her short men. I'll say that. <laughs> but she even says, if we're thinking about her as Kay, she said years later, I always thought I was the most outsider weird person in the movie. Which I think also the fact well, that she felt that way,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it fits because that's how Kay is supposed to feel. Kay is always yeah. the outsider. So again, perfect casting.
0: And she's supposed to though. She's the white blonde non-Italian.
1: Yeah. I like whenever I look at the wedding scene at the beginning, I'm always like, wow, this is so fun. No blondes, like not a blonde in sight, Mm -hmm. Italians everywhere. And then you see Kay in that bright red. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's just so, so fair and blonde. Sticks out.
0: Yeah. Well, let's get right into that wedding scene then. We can talk more about it. And then that intro really, Mm -hmm. which was shot separately, and someone had come up to Coppola and said, your movie's... Namely, um, he had just written in one for Patton said that, you know, your movie is open with some like odd scene. And so Coppola rewrote. It was supposed to start with the wedding and rewrote to have this intro scene in where we see Amerigo coming in asking for Don Corleone's help. And he says, no, this is the first time you've ever come to me. You've never had me over for dinner. And he thought that was like the right way to introduce the family dynamic and the background to everything else instead of just starting on the wedding. But I think going into the wedding, such a joyous occasion. We get shots of the police coming in and marking down which cars are there. And Mm -hmm. there's so much ad-libbing going on too. And improv, like with James Caan as Sonny, like throwing the camera down and tossing the money, like that wasn't written the cat in the very beginning with Don Corleone was a stray from the set that he found and would just like came to love him immediately. So the fact that all of that happened just makes it again more special. So, what about this intro and the wedding do you love?
1: I think first and foremost, we have to talk about Gordon Willis, our cinematographer, or DP, Prince of Darkness, mm-hmm. because what I really love is that you open with this close-up of a character named Amerigo, Bonacera. What a name with the opening line, I believe in America. So Mm -hmm. you know right away, like this is a story about the American dream. It's, it feels like it's going to be this serious epic and that slow zoom out. It's so dark in there. Everything is in shadow. And then immediately you're thrust out into this blindingly bright wedding. Like, it's just that contrast of the light and the dark is so cool to me. Like, I love that. And it recalls one of our films from our Mafia movies class, The Leopard or Il Gato mm-hmm. Pardo, of just what it looks like. And I think what is so brilliant about the wedding is that you get little snippets of each character right away and who they are, just through their actions, So I think that the way that you're introduced not just to Don Vito as this man who people come to for help, you also get who the three brothers are in this family. When you first meet Sonny, he is a hothead, right? He's Mm -hmm. smashing cameras. The women at the wedding are talking about him. You see that. When you meet Fredo, he's drunk and he's kind of groveling to Michael and Kay. When you meet Michael... He's he's not there right away, but everyone's waiting for him. And you think, like, okay, why are they waiting for Michael? Who is this person that they're waiting for? And then you realize he's completely different from the rest of the family. He looks Italian, but he comes in his uniform. He's Ivy League educated. And we get this beautiful shot of Vito looking out the blinds at Michael, <laughs> which, again, it's just like, okay, you have this sort of it's a wedding, yes, for their daughter, Connie, but it's also this homecoming, in a sense, Mm -hmm. for Michael. And you see right away his importance in this family, even though he doesn't want to be a part of it in that way right away.
0: Yeah, he says that to Kay when they sit down, they're eating, he's like watching everybody Mm -hmm. kind of distanced from the action, the dancing, everything.
1: Another thing I really love about this wedding is that we never see Michael inside until after the assassination attempt on Don Vito. He's always outside, he is always brightly lit. He's never inside with the other characters. Hmm. So, you see Sonny in the room with Don Vito at the beginning. We see mm-hmm. Fredo inside, but we never ever see Michael in interiors in that dark lighting until the transition is about to happen. Which I think is just like, again, it's so cool. Yeah. Because he's almost like Kay. He's like an outsider at first. He has tried, I think, to assimilate into the type of American life that you would have thought of in the 40s, right? He went to Dartmouth. He's in the war. He's with this waspy girlfriend. But the family pulls him back in.
2: <laughs> hmm
0: Yeah, he tried to escape. He wanted this normal life. And mm-hmm. it couldn't happen. Mm-hmm.
1: We also get introduced at the wedding to creepy Tom Hagen, (laughs) our lurker, our conciliary, who we learn through Michael was adopted by the family as a young boy, but he's German-Irish. He's not Italian, Um, but we see him there, and from there, I think we go into the scene with Jack Waltz and Khartoum the horse, which I think is one of the Mm. most brilliantly shot Mm -hmm. scenes sequences that we get in film really
0: yeah getting those establishing shots and zooming in into this house seeing him wake up and then realizing like what's happening why am I wet finding that Mm -hmm. horse head that was a real horse head that they got from this dog food company which is just bizarre (laughs) so gross yeah
1: and we have to point out too that there's an oscar on his bedside table
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm I love that yeah Mm -hmm.
1: but yeah I think too so like so having this whole plot right of that seems kind of ridiculous of like this Johnny Fontaine character who's supposed to sort of be like a Frank Sinatra type
0: Mm -hmm. who was pissed by the way
1: yeah he was he was mad about it but then also like wanted offered to be in the movie in another role so you're like (laughs) I don't okay sure but I think like seeing Hollywood's involvement and like the connection between the mafia and Hollywood at the time, which historically is very different, but like seeing their reach, right? Like this family is based in New York and they're having an influence on something that's happening across the country mm-hmm. and seeing what they do to this man into his prized horse, just so this guy yeah. will get a role in a movie is absolutely insane. We get our foreshadowing of oranges on the table. Oranges are always a sign of death in mafia movies, and it starts right here. And then, yeah, we get those beautiful shots that are taught in film classes. We get those three shots of him scream of Walt's screaming after we get the horse. That it's like close up, medium shot, long shot out of the house, dissolve mm-hmm. to Don Vito. So you you know that he did it. Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't directly cause any violence or kill anyone in the movie, he's responsible. And that to be like the first big act of violence, I think, that you see in the movie is just brutal.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the violence is, feels very real, and especially mm-hmm. for the 70s when they're trying to find these ways to have special effects in the movie. They pull it off really well, and for some of these events to have been real or like when they go through the magazine montage sequence of all of the crimes going on there's an actual shot of something that happened and notably George Lucas helped with that and didn't want to be credited
1: so at our wedding also we see Luca Brasi talking to himself practicing his speech of what he's going to say to Don Vito when he goes inside and like Kay is really disturbed by this she's like Michael that man is talking to himself <laughs> And of course, Luca Brasi, I think what we know in pop culture now, it's like, even if you haven't seen The Godfather in a while, you know the quote, Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. When Luca Brasi is about to be killed, we see him go into the bar. Mm. And on the window, there are those etchings of fish in the glass, Mm. which is so cool. And then when we, of course, when we get the fish the shot of the real fish that the Corleones are sent Mm -hmm. that's when we get that quote but you can see the foreshadowing there and again it's just like brilliant directing by Coppola Mm -hmm. to put that in here
0: and then after that we get the assassination attempt on Don Corleone which Fredo's there he fumbles with his gun and just kind of watches as Don is shot so many times again we see the oranges he goes to gets some produce, and in going back to his car, gets sabotaged. Shot in the back many, many times. And then the oranges just keep rolling. I think that's great. The shot here Mm -hmm. is great. It's this bird's eye shot of the street, which later on we get another one in the restaurant because Coppola really wanted to show the floor because they took out the linoleum of the restaurant to show this really beautiful flooring. And he was really proud of that, even if Gordon didn't like these higher shots that Coppola wanted.
1: I love that shot too. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's like the bright oranges with the dark, everything else is so dark. Um, Mm -hmm. And you learn, I think, up to this point that Sonny and Fredo are utterly incompetent. Like, when we think of Sonny, you know, you can think of Don Beto saying to him, Never tell anyone what you're thinking outside of the family again. So he knows like he's again a hothead. He's not thinking straight all the time. He's just letting his emotions rule him. And then you have Fredo who's just like so weak. Like come it's just it just kills me. It's just like he's just your like typical middle child that probably sound I'm sorry to all the middle children (laughs) out there, but like you can't think of a middle child anymore without thinking of Fredo. But it's just like he He isn't the one like he Mm -hmm. he isn't able to protect his father. And that's what you see in that scene. Mm -hmm. He lets him go on his own. He stays in the car. He doesn't go with him. He fumbles the gun. And then we are set up perfectly for Michael to find out. And he finds out in the papers that there's been this assassination attempt. Again, he's outside. Mm hmm. And then when he arrives and it's time for him to protect his father or meet up with his family and find out what happened, he's thrust inside. And I think in that moment, that's when you really start to feel the shift. It isn't this like light and bright, beautiful Christmas scene anymore of him out shopping with Kay or him going to see the Bells of St. Mary's with her. It's, it's time he's trapped now he this is this is it
0: yeah the fact that Kay sees the newspaper first and then tells michael finding out this way is just it boggles my mind every time i see this
1: well because there is a part of you and i do think this is a perfect movie so it's not like a problem i have with it but i just think all the time i'm like how is he finding out this way Mm -hmm. (laughs) because yeah i don't know but i mean it, it works cinematically i suppose and I do love when Michael goes to visit Don Vito in the hospital, and you see how protective he is, and what he's willing to do for his father, and he's able to see things differently than his other brothers, and he he seems much more like his father than they are, you know, moving him to a different hospital room, and you see his eyes kind of well up when he knows that Michael's protecting him, because... Mm-hmm. One, you can see, like, okay, this is a father who's happy that his son did that for him. But there's also, in the back of your mind, like, you know, he's probably thinking, like, I found you. I knew it was you all along. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome (laughs) to hell.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a brilliant sequence, too, of going from that to the hospital. Michael being alone, you know, being so confused on why nobody is there. Mm -hmm. Finding him. Knowing that something is about to happen. And then, after when the car drives by and the friend is shaking, and Michael lights his cigarette for him because he's okay. He's a vet, he's been through this. Um, And then the scene with the captain who assaults him, even though he did nothing wrong, and the other officers know that he's clean too. I think that just speaks to more of things that we see today, even. And from there we get the restaurant sequence so again the movie is just organized in such a clean way Mm -hmm. it's easy to follow
1: Mm -hmm. before we talk about the restaurant scene which is like maybe my favorite in the movie like one Mm -hmm. of them for sure like top two at least um i do want to talk about my favorite shot in the movie which happens when clemenza and lampone drive gato out To kill Mm -hmm. him. And Clemenza, of course, like he's off peeing in the distance. But after that murder happens, we get this beautiful shot of the Statue of Liberty in the background Mm -hmm. with the car. And it's just like, oh, this is, it just brings back those themes of this being a story about an American family, about the American dream. And the important thing there that I love is that the Statue of Liberty's back is to them. So we don't see her from the front. We see Mm -hmm. her from the back. So it's like she's looking away from from all of this. Wow.
0: And you have like the corn or the wheat field, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. like very American. You're driving out from the city into nature. And yeah, it's almost like a fence to the Statue of Liberty, this idea of freedom.
1: Wow. It's just like profound and it, it doesn't feel like it's trying to be. It's just this, mm-hmm. it's just a beautiful statement right there yeah. of where you're headed. So let's get into the restaurant scene. When they're planning this and you see Clemenza, who's a very underrated character, by the way, not only does he say, leave the gun, take the cannoli, <laughs> but
2: mm-hmm.
1: I I just feel like he's such a, he's such a strong presence in this movie But when you see him, you know, he's showing Michael the gun, and they're talking about everything that's going to happen, Um, whether it's just the two of them, and he's you see Michael holding that gun, or it's with everyone else in the family talking about the consequences of killing McCluskey and Salazzo, that tension that's there, even if you know what's about to happen in the restaurant scene, is so strong, and you're just... Hooked, And I mean, I was like, my heart was racing, and I knew it was coming.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so well edited. And this is when we first see that Michael is like about to commit some act of violence, which he hasn't yet. And yeah, you feel that too. He asks to go to the bathroom, and then he's there. He's like fumbling with the gun behind the toilet. And this scene actually is what convinced the studio to keep on Coppola Mm. because they really liked it and this was like the feat that he finally convinced them oh which is wild
1: Pacino is so good here in this scene I love when Salazzo's speaking Italian to him and they're having this this moment and michael he gets just you can see how frustrated he is in that moment and he just says what i want and it's in a very particular way the line reading is so good and you're just like okay like you you are in this power position now this is this is what's happening Mm -hmm. and i love the sound of the train when he's in the bathroom and he's about to walk back out and kill both of them it's just oh it's Mm -hmm. so so good The neck shot to McCluskey also is always makes me kind of sick when he's like grasping, like holding his neck. Yeah.
0: With the bullet right Mm -hmm. in his forehead. That one's tough.
1: (laughs) I love the way that that scene is edited and how it shows Michael's rise to power and his ability to Mm -hmm. kill.
0: And then we get the montage of the newspapers and crime increasing. And obviously, Michael has to escape. So we get these beautiful shots in sicily where you know it's funny that we talk about speaking italian because al pacino didn't know italian so when we have that scene in sicily of i'm assuming the son of the father translating to michael and vice versa like that needed to happen as like just a functional thing for this character and for Mm -hmm. al himself that's
1: great And Pacino didn't admit until years later that his family was actually from Corleone in Sicily.
2: Oh, wow. So even the actor, Mm. he
1: has such like a deep connection to the place, which is so interesting. But I love how Coppola fought for these scenes to be in the movie. I think they're absolutely essential. I know when I went to see the movie in the theater, a lot of people use this time as bathroom break. But I will say (laughs) that (laughs) I think they're crucial to understanding that this Michael is different than the Michael we saw at the beginning. Not only has he committed mm-hmm. this violent act and been forced to flee, he is seeing his family history, the lowercase F capital F family, right? The the mafia and the Corleones. He's seeing where they come from and he's returning to his roots. He's not leaning into k his wasp he finds apollonia he gets a new wife when he's there like that's how yeah. that's how far he leans into this time in sicily he almost sort of becomes his father in that way that's when you see that start to happen so and i think again similar to the waltz scenes that we get in california you see the reach of the mob and the importance of the corleone Name and of the five families. So, yeah, I think these scenes, not only are they just beautiful, Al Pacino looks beautiful in them. Mm -hmm. And Coppola was right. I mean, he fits perfectly into that Sicilian landscape.
0: Well, yeah, he has that Mediterranean tan on him.
1: We love a tan. He fits
0: right in. Yeah. These are also some of my favorite shots of the movie just from seeing the landscapes and the Italian countryside. It's so beautiful. Mm -hmm.
1: And also, like, just to point out, too, like, Michael's in Sicily, but what's happening with the other brothers, Fredo has gone to Vegas, which we find out later. I love that scene.
0: A very different Fredo than what mm-hmm. we've seen before, too.
1: Yes, very, very different. And then Sonny being murdered, like, triggers everything that's happening now with, like, all of this mob stuff that I think can be kind of confusing sometimes when you're watching it, especially for the first time, or if you haven't seen it in a while, Just seeing, like, the Titalias and who Barzini is and how Don Vito sees his position there. And the important thing to know there is just after Sonny's death and after Don Vito talks to the five families and has this meeting, Michael feels that he can come home safely.
0: This is, like, the beginning of the third act when we're getting this climax and Michael's real rise to power. But I think before this, we do see Kay going to the complex, which is on Staten Island, asking like, where's Michael? How do we contact him? And they're just like, you can't. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) goodbye. And then once Michael comes back, it feels like some time has passed, but Kay is there, and it seems like he's almost shocked to see her, but his face is also just like, has no emotion. So, we have this like awkward conversation between Kay and Michael of like, what's going to happen? Are they going to be together? This is again past where Michael had a wife in Italy and she is now dead. And Kay has no idea. So, it's just a lot has happened. And then before this, we get scenes with Sonny and the sister and him trying to defend her. We also get this really grand sequence of. Carlo and Connie fighting which the studio thought they needed some like bigger drama in the movie so they added this scene which took like way too long to film but it's like very violent he's attacking her and she's very upset and I think this ending up hearing about this is like the final straw for Sonny which gets him into trouble because he's tricked into driving to go get her and then he's gunned down midway. Which is also a brutal scene, like seeing him mm-hmm. shot
1: it's really rough it's a it's a hard end to a great character and just someone who's easy to watch in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say that so when Michael comes back and after he talks to Kay, like he's fully in control of the business because Sonny's gone, and Fredo is weak. Mm-hmm. that's it <laughs> and Michael, when he goes to Vegas and meets Mo Green, Mo Green is just also a character. And I think that's when we see also like Fredo, we're not going to talk about part two, but we have a lot of foreshadowing with Fredo and where his loyalties lie that we get, we learn more of in part two. But I think just from this one, know that Michael is unhappy with Fredo. And one of my other favorite scenes in the movie is when Michael and Don Vito are talking in The garden and Mm -hmm. he says like I never wanted this for you but you see that Michael is just he's so loyal he's so committed and he's already in too deep like he knows like he's taken over the family business already but you get this really beautiful conversation between them it actually made me tear up in the theater because I thought about how at the time like Coppola had no idea who Pacino would become but you have Pacino here talking to Brando who is probably one of his idols in acting (laughs) he's talking to him as his son here and in the scene literally in the movie Vito is giving Michael the keys to the family like he's passing the reins on Mm -hmm. you can also read the scene now 50 years later as Brando being like you're you're it you're the next generation's leader of actors like this is it's your time now which is Mm -hmm. just so cool
0: and this scene wasn't initially in the first draft of the movie. Coppola had realized later on that there was no scene with just them two in it. So he had a friend write this very quickly at the end of production and put it in. And again, this is maybe one of my like top three shots from the movie, but it's of Michael and Don and half of their faces are both in it and they're not looking at each other, but it looks as if they are. Mm-hmm. And it's like this transference of power, mm-hmm. and you can see both of them in there. It's really beautiful.
1: Ugh, I love that shot too. And of course, like Vito dying fairly peacefully. Like he has a heart attack, but he's with his grandson. So it's all about family. He dies, passing the torch to the next, the mm-hmm. next generation.
0: With the family in this tomato garden, like very, very Italian.
1: Mm-hmm. And then. We move to one of the greatest montages in cinema.
0: Mm -hmm. So this is our big lead up. We start intercutting between the five families. And then we're introduced to the christening. We're in the church. We're at this baptism where Michael has been named Godfather, which is also another bell. You know, Mm -hmm. you hear that word and -hmm. you're like, this is it. So we're in the church and then we start cross-cutting and... This wasn't how it was written in the book. So the fact that Coppola shot it and edited it this way, I think it's just fantastic. Because you're getting the rites of the baptism of Michael denouncing Satan, you know, and then cut to shooting somebody (laughs) on his orders. It's just, it's phenomenal storytelling. It's all done with editing. And him renouncing sin, but seeing these... Capo's shot like is just phenomenal. And again, Mm -hmm. this is where I mentioned the special effects of Mo Green and they had to figure out how to shoot his eye and have blood spurt out, which is just fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, for so many reasons, just like the filmmaking is brilliant. Like this is just the best use of cross cutting and montage that we have. I think one of them for sure. I think it also shows like Michael's attention to detail because in that conversation that he has with his dad Vito tells him he warns him like whoever asks to have a meeting with you that's who's going to betray you Mm -hmm. so Michael learns everything right there that it's Tessio and yes like you mentioned the signal of the word godfather we hear it at the beginning when Vito is talking to Bonacera, and now we hear it from Michael. So the transition is complete. Michael is the new Don. He's the Godfather, and yeah, it's it's just so it's so chilling. The Corleones are very Catholic. Obviously, this is like a very Italian Catholic mass, baptism. You know, bringing God into this child's life, but then you have the opposite end of the spectrum which is when the priest says do you renounce satan and he addresses like michael francis and then you see the murders it's similar to when we get that dissolve and we see Vito after khartoum's head is found in waltz's bed right Hmm. michael isn't the one pulling the trigger here but you know that he's orchestrated all these murders Mm -hmm. and that's it it's so dark it's so good the murders are so specific. Like when you think about Mo Green, the Mo Green special. <laughs> this movie's also why I'm still afraid of revolving doors because of that moment. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then, really, we go to the ending where Michael's in the house, he's in Don's chair, he is finally transformed. And right before we've seen Carlo murdered, so Connie comes in crying. That like, what have you done? And then we get Kay asking Michael, did you do this? And he consoles her. He lies to her and then sends her out. And then she's on the outside looking in and the door closes and it's kind of like a quick ending. And then, you know, you get the the end credits, but it's like, wow. And those final words we hear Don Corleone. So to go from I Believe in America to that is also just a perfect framing device for this movie.
1: Mhm. We see women and like their place in the mafia, seeing Kay being left out of their marriage and of what originally Michael wasn't afraid to tell her, you know? He at the beginning was having these conversations with her when they're at the wedding. He said he made him an offer he couldn't refuse. He was I think, more upfront about that with her. And now it's just she's completely in the dark doors. I mean, this shot is just it's so famous getting, I think, the shot of them kissing the ring with him lit in the dark. And she's pretty brightly lit outside and having her face be the final thing that we see. She's also a stand in for the audience. This is a world that we were led into in this film. And we also don't understand. Mm hmm. I think it's just it's the perfect way to end it. And her face is just like, what do I do? <laughs> Who are you? Who have you become in that moment? And I think that since then, The Sopranos has referenced this, The Irishman mm-hmm. references this, Goodfellas references this with Doors. So, it's just brilliant. I've said that so many times, but it's just <laughs> I mean stunning. So, we've mentioned a couple of our favorite shots so far. Um, Do you have any others that you really love in the movie?
0: There are just so many notable moments, like when Sonny gets shot, and he's just standing there against the car, or during the baptism, and you see the one head falls down the court steps. And I think even of Michael in the hospital again, you see these long, empty hallways and Michael running through them. I think that's as this first moment of showing him inside is like, he feels so lost and confused.
1: There's so many to choose from. Really, I would say the other one that I've, I thought about a lot this time was just the parallel between Vito and Michael when you see Vito staring out the window looking at Michael. During the wedding, there's a similar shot when we see Michael actually like looking out the doorway Um, And the way that their eyes are framed is similar. Um, So you get, again, get that nice parallel between Vito and Michael there. But like the ones I mentioned, the Statue of Liberty, the door closing on Kay, there are so Mm -hmm. many. I mean, it's just an embarrassment of riches with cinematography here.
0: And I guess also in the end, when you see Michael in that room and you see half of his face in light and half in dark, Mm -hmm. it's like, that's the moment. Yeah,
1: It's so cool. (laughs)
0: wonderful cinematography that was not nominated.
1: Absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Gordon Willis was never appreciated in the way that he should have been.
0: So we're at the 45th Oscars. Initially, The Godfather was nominated for 11 Oscars. We have picture, director, actor for Brando, supporting actor for Pacino, Duval, and Khan, adapted screenplay, costume design, film editing, sound, and then dramatic score was withdrawn later. So it really was only 10, which was the same as Cabaret that same year. But then The Godfather ended up winning three for screenplay, actor, and picture.
1: Yeah. And I I read in Inside Oscar that during the night, The Godfather team was very worried because they were not winning the awards that I think had been predicted or that they were thinking would win, you know, seeing Joel Grey win Supporting Actor instead of three of the nominees mm-hmm. from The Godfather. Coppola had won the DGA, but Fosse won the Oscar. So they were really worried that it wasn't going to go their way because it seemed leaning more towards Cabaret, which I'll just say, I love Cabaret. And we might talk about it later in the season on the show because it also is celebrating anniversary this year, obviously. I love Cabaret, but I 100% would have given director to Coppola instead of Fosse here. Mm -hmm. Just my own opinion.
0: It's kind of the funny switch here. We have Coppola winning DGA, and Bob Fosse didn't, but then at the Oscars, Fosse won the Oscar, and then Cabaret at the time became the first movie with the most Oscars to not win Best Picture, but also the Godfather not winning a technical category is also just insane.
1: It's 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 incorrect, is what it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> film editing, like, come on, that is yeah. How how does that happen? I don't I don't know. Let's talk about that score nomination because it was revoked. Nino Rota's score was disqualified and we actually got a question about this on Twitter from Categorically Oscars. Should Nino Rota's score have been disqualified? And I think just first, the reason why it was disqualified was because they discovered that part of the love theme was used in his score for a movie from 1958 called Fortunatella. How do you feel about this?
0: I mean, if there's a percentage of the score that had come from pre existing material, like that's just a stat. So I don't know if like I can have a say, but the fact that yeah, this score is just so phenomenal, you could put it on and you instantly know what it's from speaks to more than it having its nomination taken away.
1: I agree. I mean it's it's hard because I don't really think it should have been disqualified we we know they have rules and the music branch in particular especially the composers they're big sticklers for this just like we always talk about greenwood score for there will be blood being disqualified Mm -hmm. um limelight was the winner that year one of charlie chaplin's oscars
0: yeah it was his first oscar and he had made it 20 years prior so i don't know about that either
1: (laughs) It doesn't make that's what I'm saying. like it doesn't make sense. It's just kind of strange yeah. that that was the winner and the score John Addison's score for Sleuth was what replaced this. Mm-hmm. I will say like I am happy that Rhoda did win for the Godfather part Two. That's good, but yeah, I would have nominated him anyway. I don't care. It's iconic. <laughs>
0: I'll have to listen to the song from Fortunatella mm-hmm. to see. I don't know who was the rat there was it Fredo?
1: Yeah, Fredo probably told them. (laughs) And I love the adapted screenplay win, especially like with the history we talked about at the beginning with this book and everything that Coppola talked about about Mario Puzo's involvement with him. I just, I love those stories. You know, initially Coppola had a line where he said that you brown the garlic when you're making sauce, and Puzo was like, no, no, you fry the garlic. Mm -hmm. So I like those little corrections that he made, and they talk really fondly about working with each other, but also, like, I love that they were both just in debt, trying to make money, and look what happened.
0: And another fun fact is that Coppola felt like he was so indebted to Puzo's original work that he wanted to put it before his name in the opening credits. So it's Mario Puzo's The Godfather, not The Godfather, Mm -hmm. and that was something he really fought for, which, again, more props to Coppola.
1: And let's talk about the performances. We did a poll on Twitter where we asked you to rank the nominated performances, and Pacino was the overwhelming favorite. He got the most number one votes easily. Do you agree? Who gave your favorite performance in the movie?
0: Mine's Pacino. It would go Pacino-Brando as like the easiest top two. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: then I put Khan-Duval in three and four. But I feel like a lot of the people that answered put it Duval Khan.
1: Yeah. Uh, the Duval performance is tricky because I will say that before I went to see this movie in theaters, I was always like, why was Robert Duvall nominated? That's like, it's a dumb nomination. I don't get it. Why did that happen? And then when I saw it in theaters, I, I came away definitely loving his performance and thinking it's it's, it's very understated, but that's what the job is mm-hmm. here. He has to very much, you know, always be at the edge. He is sort of a lurker. He's very watchful. He's an observer. And I feel like Duval brings a lot to this performance. It's just very different from the others. And I don't think there's a bad performance that was nominated. I think that they're all strong. But I think Khan is perfect as Sonny. He plays that type, that oldest brother, the, the hothead who thinks he's doing the right thing and thinks he's protecting the family, but I love the scene when he answers the phone and <laughs> he's supposed to write everything down and he just writes 830 on the wall in a pencil. I'm like, you are such a himbo. Like please help your family. <laughs> but he thinks he's doing everything right. And I yeah, I th- I think the performance is great. But Pacino plays three characters, basically. You, you believe that entire transformation and I want to talk about part two so mm-hmm. badly, but I'm holding out. I know we'll cover it eventually, but what he does here, convince he's so convincing in moving from this boyish war veteran to Don of this family is mm-hmm. pretty remarkable and I think we should talk about category fraud <laughs> because we got quite a few questions about category fraud ryan mcquaid asked us who is the real lead of the film brando or pacino
0: i mean if you talk about the character of the godfather it's both of them it's this transference of power so why can't it be both i think if you could only have one lead actor i would still probably put pacino there and keep brando Mm -hmm. in supporting
1: yeah i definitely think it's a co-lead movie Um, Mm -hmm. especially because at the beginning of the film you barely see Pacino at all um, for a while for a significant portion and I think the transference of power is key I think they're both I think they're co-leads I definitely think Pacino should have been in lead and not in supporting I think that this does kind of follow the older model of Oscar placements where you put the big star in lead and you you put the <laughs> no matter what the length of their performance is like Pacino has more screen time than Brando but they definitely put Brando in lead too because of who he is and K Fleed 208 asked had Pacino gone lead at the Oscars could he have beaten Brando or do you think they would have split the vote and someone else would have won
0: I don't know I think with Pacino being this younger actor, I don't think he would have won yet for lead. And yeah, I think it definitely could have vote splitted if they were both in.
1: Yeah. So Brando won, best actor. Our other nominees were Michael Caine for Sleuth, Lawrence Olivier for Sleuth, Peter O'Toole for The Ruling Class, and Paul Winfield for Sounder. So we did have two co leads from Sleuth, Michael Caine and Lawrence Olivier. So I think you swap out Paul Winfield for. Pacino, like even if Pacino was in lead, I would have voted for him over Brando easily. I think Brando's good in the film, for sure. He brings Vito to life, but what Pacino's doing is is another class. So mm-hmm. I don't think he would have beaten Brando. I think Brando still would have won. I don't think I can't see another actor having enough support to overcome Brando. Mm-hmm. Pacino was also mad that he was nominated and supporting and not lead, which I think <laughs> is funny. Oh, wow. So even he he knew. Thinking about supporting, so our nominees there, we had three from The Godfather, which we mentioned. Our other two nominees, we had Eddie Albert in The Heartbreak Kid and Joel Gray, one for Cabaret. If we keep the nominees the same and we have Pacino here, who gets your vote? And then the second part is, let's say we swap Pacino out. He's in lead. Mm-hmm. Are you voting for someone else from The Godfather, or are you voting for Joel Grey for Cabaret?
0: Well, firstly, Al Pacino has the most screen time out of anybody in this category, and I would definitely be voting for him. I'm not anti-Cabaret, and I think this win for Joel makes sense, but if Al was out, there's no way James Caan is winning this category.
1: No, but would you vote for him?
0: I think it would just be an even greater margin for Joel to win. Mm-hmm. I don't think these performances by James or Robert are big enough to have won. One, just because of how well Cabaret did at the Oscars mm-hmm. and the support it had. But two, I don't think it would have won two acting Oscars.
1: I yeah. It's hard. I think I would have voted for Joel Gray for Cabaret if that was the case. Um, I definitely would have voted for Pacino over him and would have excused category fraud. I know. Whatever. Like, I don't care. I'm voting for the best performance in the category, and that's Pacino for me. If he was out of it, I would consider, I mean, Robert Du I will say Robert Duvall won supporting at the New York Film Critics Circle. Okay, So maybe he had more support than we think. But again, Mm -hmm. it's just like, it's such a subtle performance that I think still today, people don't really appreciate even. Mm -hmm. But Tom Hagen, I mean, he's an essential character. I could talk about him for a long time. We got a couple of questions about casting. We've touched on casting a bit, but we can just kind of go through these quickly, I think. One of our questions was from Kenzie Vanunu. What is your favorite casting story from the movie? She said that hers is the Burt Reynolds fiasco. (laughs) So for (laughs) listeners, if you don't know about the Burt Reynolds fiasco, it's pretty interesting. He ended up sharing details about this actually in an interview on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, which I know I cite quite frequently on our show. But he actually turned down the role of Michael for The Godfather, and he shared that it actually wasn't a decision that he ended up regretting because he and Marlon Brando had this feud. Brando Mm. did not like him at all. And Reynolds ended up saying, I was flattered that he was upset, which I think is hilarious. And (laughs) what Brando said about him is pretty scathing. I'm going to read this quote. He is the epitome of something that makes me want to throw up. He is the epitome of everything that is disgusting about the thespian. He worships at the temple of his own narcissism. (laughs)
0: Oh my god. And somebody had just shared on our thread that video of his screen test. Those are two completely different people. Yes. (laughs) Whoa.
1: Isn't that crazy? I did not know this. Yeah. Brandon is sort of a little diva too, which is funny. (laughs) Like, (laughs) making that comment. Oh my god. But yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that someone he hated didn't end up playing his son, I guess. I wonder how that Mm would have worked out. My answer to this actually goes with Rob Montoya's question, which is, how do you think casting Redford or O'Neill as Michael would have changed the film? I mean, this is always what sticks out to me, really. is just all of these blonde men who are supposed to play Michael because it just doesn't work. Mm. I just imagined Robert Redford walking through Sicily, and it just yeah. seems weird. Like, he seems like he's studying abroad. I don't know. It's just like an <laughs> odd, <laughs> an odd image to think of so i would say i mean those just thinking of the studio considering these all-american blonde guys for Mm -hmm. a role that is so italian
0: so next question we got from gabe did diane keaton or talia shire deserve a nomination
1: i think they both deserve nominations for part two i could kind of see a case for talia shire here actually Mm -hmm. but i wouldn't give diane keaton a nomination until part two and you know, I love her. So yeah, I'm giving a t- truthful answer.
0: Yeah, I would say Talia over Diane for this movie. I mean, the scene that they add with that fight alone, I think is worthy. It's short, but it's scary.
1: And then this question I loved because it took me forever to come up with an answer. And that is from KFLEE208. If you had to cast a modern day remake, who would you cast for the main roles? And we can get into these. But First, let's just say this should not be remade. <laughs> as fun of an exercise as this was, I think we should leave it alone.
0: <laughs> yeah, and thinking of names, I was like, I just, I can't do this. Can we not?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> so who do you have as veto?
0: I will say I have like one really, really good one and the others are like, eh, but mm-hmm. my veto. In thinking of Marlon Brando like being done up with prosthetics, I put Oscar Isaac in here.
1: Ooh, I have him in another part. So <laughs> I
0: was I was gonna put him as Michael, but he's too old for that now. Um, yeah. And if we're doing like today, it's being remade. So I was like, mm-hmm. he needs to be in here somewhere. And I was like, why not Vito?
1: I I like that. I went older here. I actually went with Robert De Niro. You know, he plays okay. Vito in part two. Yeah. So, I felt like it would be just a nice, nice thing to cast mm-hmm. him as Vito since he's, he's already really won an Oscar for the part. <laughs> so, I just kept him there, which is kind of boring, I suppose. But no, I see it. Yeah. That
0: was my other choice. And then, who do you have playing Michael?
1: So, I'm pretty adamant that this part should be an unknown. Like, they need to just go to Yale drama school, go to Juilliard and find some beautiful Italian boy who's a really great dramatic actor and put him in this part. Like that is how I feel first and foremost. But if I have to pick someone that we know, I actually went with Christopher Abbott. Um, he <laughs> so has just, did I. <laughs> you did? Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> he has those like beautiful dark eyes. I think he could totally pull it off.
0: Yeah, and he's 36, and Al Pacino is 32, so it's not far off. Yeah. Oh, my God. No. Oh, my oh, my God, I love that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Um. Okay, who did you have for Sonny? This one was really hard for me.
0: Yeah, and I don't love mine, but I think he could do it if we're forgetting all of the like stupid movies he's done, but Bobby Cannavale, mm-hmm. who can like play hothead, but funny, but serious if it's like the right take who do you have
1: i put someone who makes absolutely no sense for age like first i put jacob alorty because i think he could do it i think he needs like a good role (laughs) like this but i also think that i think that john bernthal could do it he was my other option that was like a more realistic choice because I think he could definitely play the hothead. He looks very Italian. Mm-hmm. Um and again, though these a lot of the actors I was thinking of are just really old for mm-hmm. these parts, which is why I went with Jacob Alordi, but he's also significantly younger than Christopher Abbott. So, this is why I'm not in casting.
0: <laughs> what about Tom?
1: For Tom, I went with Jesse Plemons. Um seeing Jesse Plemons in The Power of the Dog, And hearing Jane Campion's influence on the role of George, being Tom Hagen primarily, I was like, he can totally do this. He has that right, um, the watchfulness to him that Duvall has.
0: Um, This was sort of a joke, but I also said Jesse (laughs) (laughs) Blavitt.
1: We are making the same movie.
0: This is, yeah, this is crazy. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. I love it. Okay, who did you have for Fredo?
0: I feel like this should be kind of an unknown too, but who just popped through my head is Bradley Cooper <laughs> um, in okay. like a silver linings way, because he could shift from that like Judas to Vegas flip pretty easily.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally.
0: Maybe oddball, but who's yours?
1: I love Bradley Cooper there, because I think, you know, I'm always looking for opportunities to give him an Oscar. And he is Italian. Um, and he is Italian, exactly. <laughs> I think for Fredo, you have to be like a little smarmy or kind of like could play that convincingly. So the impulse I had to cast Jared Leto was strong, but <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Um, instead, two names jumped out to me. The first was Dave Franco. Another person who I think could also do it, who I don't really love as an actor, but um, who is somehow Sicilian is Michael Cera.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Can't you see yeah. him like in the Vegas scenes, like, Fumbling the gun, crying when he's like totally messed up. Like I feel like that could work.
0: (laughs) Going through lists of Italian American actors and seeing him, I was like, "This does not fit at all."
1: (laughs) No, right? Because he's so he's just so pale. Like there's just something to him. I'm always like, "You don't you don't look like Bobby Cannavale or (laughs) Milo Ventimiglia Mm -hmm. or any of these guys." Yeah,
0: and it's funny you mentioned Jared because at the end we have Connie, and I was like. Just throw Jared Leto in there, transform him.
1: Well, my Connie pick is related, so (laughs) I'm sure yours is too.
0: (laughs) Who do you have for Kate? This is my one that I like knew right off the bat.
1: Oh, really? Okay, I have two here who I think could really work. The first was Amanda Seyfried. She's she has those wide eyes. She can come across as very innocent. I thought of her um, as Marion Davies in Mank. She's also very blonde and can wear those bright colors and hold them really well. And the other who's just like a little bit more plain, I would say, in a way that Kay is in the movie is Elizabeth Olsen. I think she could do it as well. Mm -hmm. The person has to kind of have a nondescript quality to them, I think, Mm -hmm. sometimes. So I also picked her.
0: I like this as a pick from her playing Martha Marcy. But I think WandaVision kind of skews that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I love her as an actress. I'm surprised you didn't choose mine. I have Margot Robbie here. You don't see yes, it? Yes,
1: I do. But I, I almost think she's too striking.
0: She's super a list now. Isn't yeah? But I feel like that she could play that smaller, quieter K, but also have that edge in a way. Like when K is coming to mm-hmm. ask about Michael, she, like she could be adamant yeah. about like where is he.
1: I can hear her yelling. it was an abortion, Michael in part two. I can hear that. and she does have a good face to end the movie on mm-hmm. because you do have to you have to end it on her. Yeah. Just to like think of the other mobsters um, in the movie, I think that you could have Oscar Isaac and Bobby Cannavale as like other heads of the five families. you could do or like Salazzo, Tessio, um, those kinds of characters. I think Adam Driver would be a great Mo Green. I did think of that one too when I'm like thinking of who else is in the cast and who I could put in there. Mostly because I thought of those big glasses and his wild glasses Mm in House of Gucci and just how kind of nerdy he can look.
0: Someone I want to throw in. So I just want to put like the entire cast of The Sopranos in here. I wanted to find a role for Federico Castelluccio who plays Furio.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Because he
0: has that really Italian look like he's from Italy in the show. And he goes back, he would be a good face. And then I also love Joseph Ganescoli to play Clemenza. He was the one with like the gay plot line later on in the series.
1: Yeah. I mean, The Sopranos really is a treasure trove of people. If you're casting a Mm -hmm. remake of The Godfather, like just go back to the drawing board, like look at the, just look at IMDB for The Sopranos and you can find, you can find people there for sure.
0: I mean, aid for Connie, it could work.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. There's
0: probably some inspiration there.
1: Oh, 100% could do it. I mean, Michael Imperioli too. He would love to be in this. Mm -hmm. If this remake was actually going to be a good remake, he would sign up in a heartbeat.
0: Who else do you have for Connie?
1: For Connie, I have Lady Gaga. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) I feel like she would eat that up. Yeah, she would. Like, imagine her at the wedding (laughs) Mm -hmm. or like delivering in that scene when Carlo was attacking her. Like, she would go for it. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Oscar nomination mm-hmm. for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. I also think that um, Jamie Lynn Sigler, if we're thinking of um, Sopranos, we can mm-hmm. put Meadow in that part.
0: Yeah. Hmm. I thought of Ana Darmis. I don't think that works. She's, mm-hmm. like, too nice. Then I thought of Zendaya.
1: Zendaya and Jacob Elordi siblings. <laughs> really.
0: <laughs> I mean, that kind of gets into Malcolm and Marie, which, uh, but... I could see her like fighting back and screaming and doing well there.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, she's a great dramatic actress. We saw that in this season in that one yeah. episode where it's like her at the beginning oh, totally. in with her mom. Oh, my God. It's, yeah, Euphoria. That was fun. This movie will not get made, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Although I need Gaga as Connie. Like yeah. that's just that's the one that I really <laughs> want.
0: <laughs> so next question is from Connor. If this movie came out today, do you think it would be more or less successful at the Oscars?
1: That's really hard. I think it would get the same amount of nominations. But I think I guess it would be probably as successful. I'm not sure if it would win Best Picture, because it's such a dark film. I mean, if you're thinking like adapted screenplay and actor, possibly. So I think it could be close. I think it's the, if the reputation question is different, if you're thinking about how audiences perceive it, but I think the Oscars might look at it similarly.
0: Firstly, I don't think it's the number one box office movie of the year. That's Mm-mm. not happening. But I think nomination-wise it would be the same, maybe slightly more. I mean, I feel like they would swap some of the acting nominations for technicals. Like this would definitely get an editing, maybe cinematography, some of those benchmark mm-hmm. nominations for picture. I think it could win picture. I think Francis Ford Coppola would definitely have a run for winning director. It would just depend. I mean, we've had like lighter fare and darker fare recently. It's it's been a mixed bag. But
1: yeah, you saying that makes me wonder, like, I wonder if this is just like one of those that just wins director and cinematography (laughs) instead, right? Like it wins the same amount, but it doesn't win the same awards. Yeah. All right. Our next question is from Ryan McQuaid. Would it be AFI's number one movie of all time if they redid the list now? context, it's the number two movie right now. And Citizen Kane is number one.
0: I think it's still Citizen Kane. I think Citizen Kane is just a more prolific movie. It was made 30 years prior. And I think it's one that people return to in looking for like new advancements in film and techniques and a style that Wells was totally responsible for. I don't know if I like it more as a movie, but I think they're close. And I think to critics, Citizen Kane just still has a slight edge.
1: I agree. So the list was updated in 2007. So for me, that's after The Sopranos. So you already they already could see the influence that was there from The Godfather. So I don't think necessarily like an update today would reflect that. I do think that The Godfather should be number one, just because I think it is a more valuable film to pop culture and just historically and I prefer it to Citizen Kane but I mean I don't have any problems with Citizen Kane being number one it's not like it's don't look up or something
0: Mm -hmm. and with Sight and Sound they updated their poll in 2012 but previously it was Citizen Kane now it's Vertigo but Citizen Kane is at two and The Godfather seems pretty low it's at 21 Mm
1: -hmm. well Vertigo, that's, I mean, that's like the perfect number one choice. I, I love that.
0: And next question we have from Cesar Award winner Baby Annette. Which acting nominations that didn't happen anger you most?
1: Um, I'm going to say John Cazale in Godfather Part Two. I don't really have any that upset me from the first one that much. Like Talia Shire, I guess. But um, yeah, Diane Keaton and two and John Cazale in two. Those are the ones, especially Cazale. That's crazy.
0: I just had a cracked thought of Frank Langella playing Captain McCluskey and getting an Oscar nomination for that.
1: Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> the way that would happen. Or Mark Ryland's. Right,
0: right. <laughs> um, For the question, I'll have to say Talia Shire. I mean, with four acting nominations and these female performances that were very small, I don't really see anyone else getting in here or swapping but i think she would have the best
1: bet our next question comes from gabe guaran who is the hottest in show
0: i mean it's al pacino yeah hands down yeah Mm -hmm.
1: i would say al pacino as an actor and sunny as a character for me
0: and then last question from david metzger the godfather seems to be one of the rare instances where a film is recognized as a masterpiece at the time of its release it has always been known and presented to me as one of the great films. I worry and I wonder, how would this film fare if released in today's film climate?
1: Uh, not well. <laughs> because mm-hmm. people would make jokes about it being too long and how they couldn't finish it in one sitting and how it's slow. I mean, I can just, I can hear it. I mean, today's audiences just aren't, they can't handle movies like this in the same way. Um, the attention spans are shorter I also worry it would go straight to streaming and not have the theatrical experience that you need, I think, for this type of movie when it first comes out. I think I worry it would be a critic's darling, and that's Mm. where it would stop.
0: There definitely have to be some updates. So I think if it's like politically correct, but it's still showcasing the Italian American experience, I think it would be fine. I mean, I'm prepping for our next pod and there are some like really cringe scenes from a movie we'll have to mention, but... So true. I think this definitely has potential. I don't know if it would go right to streaming. I mean, I think it's way more epic than The Irishman on a different level. But like I said earlier, it's not the number one box office pick of the year. It definitely could be a critic's darling though. Like getting a lot of those early award season wins and then like not being sure leading up to the Oscars. Not that that's, you know, the only benchmark, but
1: yeah, I think I think audiences today, when it comes to certain topics in films, like they need them updated for today's climate. And that is just not how it was in the 70s. All right, our final question. If you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? And I think we would both give it picture. So let's take picture off the table and Mm -hmm. pick another one.
0: Yeah, that's one of those rare picture cases for me. It's hard. There are so many. Put score back in as a nomination. I don't care. And even though Coppola has like so many good movies that come after this, I'm going to give it to him for director. I think that's my like all-encompassing pick when there are so many and I don't know what to pick. Like editing, cinematography, score. There could be acting like Brando. LOL, who knows if he would accept it today or not, but Pacino, so I'll just, I'll settle on director.
1: Oh my god, we completely forgot to talk about how Brando didn't accept his Oscar. (laughs) I feel like most people know that anyway, so it's okay. We had a lot to cover. I'm with you, Coppola for director. It, you know, he had so much working against him, and Mm -hmm. despite all of that, he gave us one of the greatest films of all time. He- made sure Pacino was cast he took care of that novel he made so many great choices that gave us the movie we have today without him it doesn't exist and without him the Sopranos doesn't exist Goodfellas doesn't exist yeah. like that's it's crazy to think about that so I have to give it to Coppola
0: well that was great I'm so glad we finally got to talk about The Godfather we dissected the hell out of that
2: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I learned so much about the production from this. I can't wait to rewatch it. I'll be rewatching part two very soon. And again, this is one of my all time favorites and it will forever be.
1: Me too. I love it so much. I'm so glad that we finally got to talk about it. And now enjoy our interview with Dana Ringo. We are so excited to welcome our former professor, Dana Ranga to Oscar Wilde. Dana was just named Divisional Dean of Arts and Humanities and is a professor of Italian and core faculty in the Film Studies program at The Ohio State University. In addition to two monographs, one co-authored book, and an edited volume, she has published over 40 articles and book chapters on Italian cinema and television, Italian popular culture, in modern and contemporary Italian poetry and literature. We both took a couple of Dana's classes when we were students at Ohio State, including our Mafia Movies course, which we
3: love to discuss frequently. Dana, welcome to Oscar Wilde. Oh, thank you so much, Nick and Sophia. It's wonderful to be here. I was very um, excited and heartened and kind of, it was very sweet, the invitation. And, and then I remembered all of the, I, I checked both, both of our conversations that we'd have about nine, years ago and you were both so active and like very present and so uh, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> I remember the interview we had in class on the screen it was like a zoom interview and we had both asked questions to the person who came which was just fun again I think we talked about the godfather then but
3: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's always good memories thinking of that large classroom we were in <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> now there's about 600 students in it online um, both so two hundred each summer. So it's it's, it's expanded. Wow,
1: <laughs> I remember when I took because like at the end of my freshman year, I took one of your Italian cinema classes that was yeah. in Italian, and you were talking about how you were going to teach
3: this mafia movies course, and I was like, I have to take that. <laughs> I think you were one of the inaugural students. I think you both were. Yeah. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's on its 10 year anniversary. So like the Godfather is coming up on, or it has year <laughs> anniversary this <with> year. So.
0: <laughs> and I hear you've been teaching in gateway or you have.
3: I did before um, the pandemic. So we, we were teaching in gateway. That was really fun. It was capped at 207 students because that's the amount of, of students who could sit in the gateway and they could you know, bring popcorn in and, I once asked if they were allowed to buy the wine and beer, and they said um, they're sworn to secrecy. So they, they <laughs> put on that. But um, yeah, and then when the pandemic moved us online, the course became incredibly interactive with like a Twitter space, a top hat space, all sorts of really cool interactive spaces. And we decided it worked really well. And, you know, it's great to, to teach that many students, the Godfather, 1400 Ohio State students each year. <laughs> are oh all Incredible. about the Godfather, which is fun.
0: <laughs> so I guess starting off, tell us a little about your background in why mafia studies, why movies, why these things together and why you kind of formed this class as we've kind of been saying here at Ohio State, how you've gotten so many students interested in this?
3: Those are great questions. So um, why film and media studies is the first one. I was a math major in college and um, I wanted to be a lawyer and I was really interested in complex problem solving. So I loved all my math classes, but they were giant and nothing against UCLA's math department, but like everyone was stressed out and it was kind of not fun. And I was always taking Italian language classes and I started taking more content classes and then I started taking some film classes. And I realized that the same types of kind of skill sets that I learned in math, I could plot I could apply to film and media studies and analysis where you're looking for like patterns, irregular patterns and trying to find a kind of a master narrative around them to like arrive at some sort of large thesis. So I, I switched. <laughs> and, um, and then when I came to Ohio State in 2007, I taught a few mafia classes on my, at my previous institution, 1800 students, Colorado College, which was great. But I was watching the Super Bowl. And um, I'm not a huge Football fan, but I love commercials. I love like the commercials that the Super Bowl puts off. And uh, I remember sitting in a bar in German Village in January of 2008. And there was this Audi football commercial that you guys might have remembered that we looked at. And I was so fascinated by it that a horse head was replaced by, you know, a grill of a car. And it meant that like the mafia had been so displaced in the American imaginary that it's just part and parcel of it. It just has this like mythical standing. And i was fascinated by that and no book existed on mafia movies kind of italian and american mafia movies like an edited volume nothing existed so that next day i wrote to about 40 colleagues and i said we need to do this thing and we ended up it was about a year and a half project and i the mafia movies a reader emerged from that commercial watching experience and then i loved i came to osu because of the public land grant mission teaching students from all sorts of different backgrounds, you know, um, just really engaging with like, what's interesting about the state of Ohio and what could be doing. And we were, I think, moving to semesters. And we we were thinking about what's a general education class that could really draw people in, get them really excited about topics in Italian studies, and maybe get them thinking about a major or a minor or doing more things. And I'm like, well, the mafia, it's, it kind of sells. And um, I created the class and thinking like, well, maybe 20 people will take it. And the first time we taught it was in Haggerty 180, and it, it, it overfilled just because of the title. And then I realized that so, I had so many Italian-American students, so many students thinking about their identities, um, their grandparents' identities, and, and, and also just what it means to kind of think about the mafia in, in these really interdisciplinary ways. So it's been exciting. <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that you're still teaching it and that it's just like grown and come this mm-hmm. far, just getting right into the Godfather. I've been yep. thinking about this a lot. Um, I read that you published a monograph called sympathetic perpetrators, which mm-hmm. I thought was fascinating that discusses like how and why viewers root for difficult and complex men who do horrible things. Yeah. And I have to admit when I watched the Godfather, when I just watched it recently too, I find Michael Corleone totally irresistible. And I root for him the whole movie, especially when he's doing very violent things like in the restaurant scene and at the christening at the end, when you're getting that cross-cutting. So if you could talk like a little bit more about why you think people feel this way
3: um, (laughs) specifically about Michael and why we're drawn to him as viewers. That's a great a great question, and, and kind of complex anti-heroes, sympathetic perpetrators, good bad men, whatever you want to call them, have been around for a very long time, but The Godfather in 1972 kind of like sealed the deal, and now there's this uprising insurgents, or whatever you want to call it, of antiheroes, especially in television, you know, I, I don't know if mm-hmm. you either you've seen in Italian context, Gamora or Subura, if you haven't watched them immediately, they're just fascinating like, mafia criminals who are just represented in super sympathetic terms and they do way worse things than Michael and um I think what what Michael Corleone and you know we've all watched I won't spoil part two but you know we've all watched part two and he doesn't look so great in part two I mean he's he's a different (laughs) part two Mm -hmm. but in part in part one it's this kind of coming of age tale so it's romance it's coming of age there's Apollonia there's Kay, although he doesn't Treat Cape super well. But um it's it's kind of a lot of those master grand narratives that people really like to buy into. So and the mafia. So it's this guy, he's a war veteran, he's a he's an Ivy Leaf, he's a Dartmouth grad, he's someone who never wanted to be involved in his father's family, but yet he's pulled in because of what. It means when the hit on his father happens. So it's also a family story. It's like you know, it's it's and a lot of people have written about The Godfather in terms of like an anti-capitalist American, you know, expansion. What's happening in Vietnam, and it's kind of a it's it's a critique of what's happening in in Vietnam at the time. But with Michael, he's good looking, you know. He gets hit by Captain McCluskey. That I mean, that when Captain McCluskey hits him on the street outside of the the hospital in the book, that is such a big deal. And that um, the scar on his face, the contusion that he has on his face is constantly talked about in the in the book. And he actually has surgery in the book to like remove it, but it's barely referenced in the film because that's this like, this is like he's been wronged and he needs to get revenge. And he's protecting his father, who's a man of the soil, a good guy, he's never done anything wrong, you know? And mm-hmm. so I think that's one of the things, it's coming of age, it's love, it's, you know, um, it's a transition narrative, and it's also, you know, especially the first two. It's a rise and fall narrative. The rise and fall narratives are just great master narratives of, of film. And in, in kind of the Godfather Part One, it's mainly a rise. So yeah. that's, I think, some of the reasons we. And he's wears like really great suits, and and there's. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's. I think those are some of, and so that, but that template has been imported into all sorts of other narratives about criminal anti-heroes who Mm -hmm. viewers are positioned to root for despite their, they know they're bad, but they don't care.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And one, I think the Godfather compared to part two, right? It is that rise because you have, you open with a wedding, you end with a baptism. There's no fall really there until you get to part two.
3: Well, and I would say there is one fall, which is the last two minutes of the film with Kay. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's Mm -hmm. that, really meaningful, interesting moment when, um, I think it's masterful and I have no, you know, a lot of um, people who work on Hollywood film production would be able to speak to this much better than I could, but how they position the camera within the room with Michael and his new underlings who are baptizing him as Godfather, but Kay's outside and, and the door shut, she's framed kind of within the space. So she's really central, but she's excluded. But the viewers inside with Michael, but looking at Kay, but she's looking at the viewer, and she's inviting i think that that it's a direct eyeline match to the viewer, and mm-hmm. so it's this lingering kind of like what's happening here that I think is um suggesting the fall that the part two completely gets out yeah. so that's that's the one moment where i'm mm-hmm.
1: yeah
3: you know, i'm always I also love you know gender studies so I'm upset oh, you yeah. I have a question about
1: that later on <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I think it's clear that The Godfather is an easy stepping point for one for students, for anybody of the one movie they know related to the mafia, it's The Godfather. And it's one of the most influential of all time. But do you find any other reason why this movie in particular is why you like to start your course? I think we had talked about a short before this and we read some articles about The Black Hand, but why The Godfather is the number one out of all of the mafia related entertainment out there.
3: So you want the truth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a, there's a, I don't want to say a marketing ploy, but um, the, right. um, I think so one of the things I've realized in teaching this film for so many years is that so many students, I don't think you two think they've seen it, but they're actually never seen it at least in its entirety, but it's so like ingrained that they it's all over popular culture. It's like all over the place, you know, the horse head scene and the, the score and everything, and, and then they're like, "Wait, I've actually never seen it, and I had no idea it was this long." That's one thing that I was yeah. <laughs> I <had no> <laughs> like, three hours long," and um and so I like to start that because I think there's a practical reason because if you'll remember that course, the film after this is the Leopard, which mm-hmm. is longer, and I find the mother of all Italian mafia movies, and I know it bores mm-hmm. students. Tears, but it's essential to understanding that the mafia was born part and partial with the Italian state. And it kinds of it explodes the myth of the mafia that the that I think the godfather purports, which is just like a sense of being, it's a sense of rustic chivalry, it's protecting. It's the I mean the godfather is also deconstructing that myth that it's simultaneously putting forward. But I think it's it's a really good hook at the very beginning to get students to think critically about the mafia. So you remember how I teach it. It's not glamorization of organized crime. It's that this is like simultaneously um, deconstructing the myth that it's constantly putting forward much more so in two, but in one. And so it sets the stage for a really, really interesting kind of longitudinal conversation about how the glamorization versus the quote unquote, if you want to say it, reality of the mafia. Um, It's also incredibly exciting to teach. It's so much fun to teach. I mean, you could, every time I teach it, there's new stuff I noticed. I remember like when I taught it with you guys, I didn't notice this one thing, which I do is the break of in the frame, which is this narrative thing that I'd never noticed before after seeing it, God knows how many times. And then every time you watch, you see new amazing things because of it's like masterful construction or, Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, I think it's a great starting off point to get people really deep in the material. What are some of
1: just your favorite things that you've noticed recently that you maybe missed before that
3: students have picked up on that you've really liked? So one of the things I've been working on, I've given a few talks about this now, and I'm writing an article about it, which is the The Godfather at 50 in light of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. So what I've noticed significantly as demographics in higher education have shifted And as students in the class are increasingly more diverse from all sorts of standpoints, you know, race, gender, ethnicity, first generation status, et cetera, they're kind of refusing to take the casual racism, the sexism, and the misogyny in films like The Godfather, Mean Streets, you know, all the. They don't like it and I, I totally so that's one thing I think is super interesting in terms of thinking about the godfather at 50 right now it's a totally it's being received very differently by students than it was. In the past, where mainly like, people were more concerned about the violence against the horse, you know, and now mm-hmm. it's like the violence against Connie you know that that scene with with um, Carlo beating her is. horrible, You know, and and the. The race, racial slurs throughout the film against mainly against African Americans, against Irish, are all meant to shore up the status of the Italian Americans and make the Italian Americans like somewhat better. And that's one of the things I've really, really noticed. And I've taken to heart because I've had an increasingly I have the last few times I've I taught the film, I had a really large group of African American women in the film. And this is during, you know, summer of 2020 or April of 2020. And we're like talking about this film, and you really have to say, whoa, this is super problematic and let's take the film to task for this, but also appreciate it as a really important work of art. So that's one of the things, but that's dear to my heart as well in terms Mm of, so that's one of the main kind of things that's that's standing out to me. And I also like how, I mean, students are constantly pointing out new stuff to me and finding all sorts of things in popular culture. So now I have a list of maybe a hundred Or more, I have this archive of 100 popular cultural moments where The Godfather is referenced. You know, know, I'm wondering like do do 18 year olds now have they seen The Godfather? What are they What does this mean to them? You know, they just know about it from conversation and from you know popular culture and media and things like that.
1: Yeah, thank you for Mm -hmm. that. That goes perfectly into my next question. I want to hear from you about the women in The Godfather. It's always been something that's fascinating to me when I watch it just how there's this striking contrast between Apollonia and Waspy Kay Adams (laughs) and you have Mama Corleone and you have Connie and I I think I would like to hear from you just like how do you think Coppola uses these women and these characters to portray women in the mafia or to show like how women were in the mafia and then also to think about or maybe illuminate Michael's shifting transformation from going from yeah. this war vet to
3: Don in the end? Yeah, that's that's a, another really great question. Um, so the second part I'll answer first, which is Michael structurally has to go to Corleone to hide, but symbolically he has to go to Corleone to be wed to the soil in Sicily so he can be a godfather. Like he has to go, like it just, he can't not be a godfather without going there. So it's very, it's like Apollonia, who's more more Greek than Italian. You remember that you were saying mm-hmm. like 2000 years old, she's not just this new Italian thing. She's vitally important for him because she kind of consolidates his Italianness ness and allows him then to go home to be godfather in training. So her death by um, wrongful explosion is immediately followed by a fade out, fade into, um, a uh, tilt of Don Vito negotiating his son's return. So it's narratively, it's very clear that she dies and he comes home, he's the godfather. Before she dies, his relationship with Kay is very like, romantic and caring. He's warm, he's kind, you'll remember all those. And then when he goes to meet her outside of the school where she like lets all the children who are going to the bus just kind of disappear, they just go nowhere and <laughs> they can run the bus where they go. He, he says, I need you. He doesn't say, I love you. He doesn't say, you know, he needs her to have kids. So he needs her to be the next godfather. He needs her to have the role of wife and mother. So I think that trend, that shows that his transition from, and I think at that point, when he says that, he, he, he definitely changes. He even changes earlier, you know, after the hit on this dad in the hospital. But um, so that's that's something I think these two women, as you said, waspy white, but she wears brilliant color, bright colors. She's very straightforward. She asks questions, not getting direct answers. And Apolloni is like Tuesday, Wednesday, Monday, Monday, whatever. You know, She barely speaks. She's And um, the women, I think in the film, Mama Corleone is named Mama Corleone, which is I think important to note that she doesn't have a real name. And she's always in the kitchen holding babies. I mean, there's the wedding scene when she's singing. Uh, Connie is is beaten by her husband. She reacts violently after um, he's murdered by, on the orders of Michael. Um, there's the nameless women who Sunny sleeps with. They don't really have roles. And then you have, you know, you have Apollonia and Kay. And um, one of the things I, I found interesting is in terms of star studies and like thinking about um, work on the people who actually were cast in the roles in these films. There's tons of work on the men, but there's nothing on the women. And these are like really Talia Shire, you know, this is like these are big names in Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And people don't really look at them as interesting cases for Star Studies. So I I think it's a massive lacuna. Last thing I'll say: the re-release for the 50-year trailer when it came out in I think February 23rd, the last frame in that is. Is Kay again staring at the audience, and then it ends. So it's like her ling- lingering, ambivalent position as a woman in the mafia is still is still there, and it's is still like super unanswered.
1: Ugh. Yeah, I mean that final shot it stays with you. Like even when those credits start rolling, you can only really think about Kay. At least that's yeah. how I am when I watch it. Yeah,
0: I don't think listeners understand how much you love the leopard. I want to emphasize this before my question and maybe thinking of other mafia films or Italian made films, but what do you think would be a good double feature or small list of other movies that would pair well with the Godfather besides also Godfather part two? obviously?
3: <laughs> so are you thinking more um, well, I... like Hollywood films or like go crazy and think of something that would be
0: um, ones that came to my mind would be like Gomorrah. Yeah. Um, I thought of the leopard as well. We, I'd watched the conformist, I think last year or a couple of years ago, but like so anything good. that you, you would recommend. And if you want to like compare, contrast Italian American versus Italian made mafia films, and maybe why the Godfather hits so well with American audiences or audiences around the world.
3: Yeah, well, I love your bringing up the conformist because it brings up this question of authoritarianism and patriarchy and control. So I think I would have never picked that, but I love that you did because I can see those being a really interesting, like conversational, they're really interesting conversational partners. They're totally different in terms of style, Mm -hmm. time period, et cetera. But you're you're thinking about kind of men in power in completely different ways transhistorically. So kudos, I I, I like that in terms of i you know one of the things i like to do is with the godfather i like to think productively about film and tv so now i've moved much more into tv and i work almost exclusively on television even though i do some stuff on 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 film but it's mainly exclusively on television and some of the stuff i'm most interested in is the production aspect what's behind it so the casting you know stardom marketing Performance, distribution, finance, like all of those things. So if I were to take like a blockbuster, like The Godfather in 1972, which was like almost impossible to cast. Like nobody wanted the real parts, nobody <laughs> wanted to do it. And then, and think about how, you know, a TV series, like you said, Gomorrah the film, but I'm thinking like maybe Gomorrah the series, how they had to do the street casting and find actors who were never known to the showrunners kind of um, mandate was they could not have had any experience in mafia related TV products. Um, and then they found two who had mafia-related experience in TV products because they were perfect. But to think about all that stuff that went on behind it and around it to kind of think about then. And then after you do that, what are they showing? Another thing I'm super obsessed about was is realism. It, are things real or not? That's mass. It comes up all the time with, with conversations around the mafia and especially mainly in Italy where organized crime is represented in fiction and it's based on actual real-life crime networks and actual people who are dead. And that's not the case in America. It's all kind of fictionalized. So there's this massive polemic in Italy about that. But then to to think about something, if it's like the Godfather versus Gomorrah, they both totally glamorize crime. They they do, you know, 54 years apart, 52 years apart from the first Gomorrah to the Godfather they have people root for the enemy and they have these coming of age, rise and fall narratives, but what about them? Like in terms of the production and stuff would be, would be different. So I'd love that kind of showdown where I given the chance to do so. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. I would love to have another hour discussion on the Sopranos. I mean, we both absolutely (laughs) love love
3: Sopranos.
0: I know.
1: (laughs) Oh my God. That's what I was going to ask you. I was going to say if you could pick an episode of The Sopranos
3: to pair with The Godfather. (laughs) Okay. I've never been asked that question before. I have (laughs) been asked tons of times my favorite Sopranos episode, which I have a really easy answer to, and it actually might be the same. Yes. So in Commendatore, um, which is season two, episode four, I think of The Sopranos, when they're going to Naples, They start the conversation by, um, a Polly, I think Polly asking Tony, what's your favorite episode or what's your favorite moment in the Godfather part two, they're talking about the, they're trying to watch it. It's a bootleg copy. And Chris is like banging the TV and, um, and he, and, and Tony says, it's the crickets, it's the villa, you know, it's Don Chicho's villa, you know, it's so quiet and everything. And that's when, you know, the early Don Vito goes in like guts, Don Chicho. And it's like. Not a very pleasant moment. It's a very violent moment, but in Tony's mind, he's conflating (laughs) his Neapolitan Camorra identity, right? He's he's with the companion Camorra, with the Sicilian Cosa Nostra, and he finds it like it's kind of like the horsehead scene. He's like, it's like it's so great. It's the crickets. It's like so quiet and peaceful. And so I think that would be an amazing, an amazing comparison. I love that. No, I awesome. need to rewatch that episode and maybe the entire <laughs> <Yeah>. series again, <laughs> just because. I, I found in teaching *Sopranos*, it's incredibly contemporary for for students. Even though you know, you'll remember that Carmela's pants; she wears these pants. She's incredibly dated, like hot. The clothing is incredibly dated, but students are still now they respond to it as this contemporary, like, not even a that it's, it has some sort of special status as being, you know, something it's not retro. It's just like, I just love it and have to watch all six seasons right now. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. We definitely did that when we took your class. Like I had already seen most of it, but I think that we both did like a
3: full binge Mm -hmm. of the entire series. Yeah. It's, it's worth it over and over Mm -hmm. again.
0: So, in just wrapping up, we ask all of our guests what's something you are wild for right now. It can be a book, a movie, a TV show, anything.
3: Um, that's I again a great question. I started this new G- dean job back in July, so my time is d- different. So <laughs> I, I, I have much more, much less time to do what I'm passionate about, which is watch a lot of media. But I'm, um, you know, I have to say I'm really, really, really excited about. My Brilliant Friend. So oh. the Italian, um, the um, Rye HBO co-production of My Brilliant Friend on season three. It's just absolutely fascinating. And again, it's it's like Naples authenticity and all that stuff. So that's that's one of the things. And I'm I'm loving all these like Anna Sorkin things about you know what it means to, what it means to again be authentic or not and possibly um, represent yourself as someone you aren't. So the, uh, there's about four others that we need to watch but that that's that's one of them but my brilliant friend is totally on that it it's like casting performance authenticity and lots of lots of beautiful shots of Ischia so mm-hmm. can't oh, be bad that.
1: <laughs> That's great Well Dana thank you so much for joining us this was great I loved just like seeing you again and yes. hearing what you think of The Godfather still on its 50th anniversary
3: it's great to see you both. I remember both of you as like incredibly engaged and like very thoughtful students. And, and so it's wonderful. To see you both.
0: Thank
1: you.
3: Appreciate Thank that. you.
1: That's so sweet.
0: <laughs> Again, thanks for listening to this episode and to the interview with Dana. Feel free to rate, review and subscribe. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod.
1: We hope you enjoyed our episode on The Godfather and that we gave it the tribute it deserved. (laughs) Next time on Oscar Wilde, we are premiering a new theme that we'll be going into this season where we will be talking about actors, filmmakers, creatives that won their Oscar for the wrong thing. This is something that plagues history, I think, when you're thinking about the Oscars, Where you'll have someone and you just think, how did they win for that? They were so much better in this. Mm -hmm. And our first actor that came to mind, really came to mind because of this movie, it's Al Pacino. We'll be talking about his Oscar-winning role in Scent of a Woman. (laughs) And each sharing a performance, a film that we think he should have won for instead.
0: I think this is a great place to start, having talked about The Godfather, one of his earliest movies, and seeing what he's created from there. So I think we can take this in a lot of roots, and I'm excited to see who we cover. If you guys have any recommendations or like favorites that have scathing winds, let us know. <laughs> I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say.
1: <laughs> yes, please let us know, and also let us know if you think Al Pacino deserve to win for scent of a woman like if you think that's a good win let us know and give us your suggestions for what you think he should have won for instead thank you again for listening and we will see you next time